Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Pulse, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. We're here recording on November the 12th, 2020, and the presidential election was last week. In fact, for many of us who are watching it, it was all of last week. Today, we're going to walk you through the polls and the predictions prior to the elections and reflect on them now that Joe Biden has been announced as the president-elect by the major news agencies. Before we go to our interview with Frank Newport, who's senior scientist and the former editor-in-chief at Gallup, I'd like to share some of the highlights from the Bernstein webinar on polling that featured Frank on October the 21st, two weeks prior to the election. First and foremost, we asked Frank why the polls in 2016 were so far off, and his response was that they actually weren't that far off. And I get that question a lot and have since 2016. Our professional association, the American Association of Public Opinion Research, did a full evaluation of the 2016 polls after it was over. Bottom line, the national presidential horse race polls, that is putting everybody together who's going to win Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, were very accurate, one of the most accurate polling years that we have had. The polls showed her, that is Hillary Clinton, winning by three plus points, and she actually won the popular vote by two percentage points. So they were very quite accurate. Now, what people were reacting to were not so much the polls as to the forecasting model. There were a lot of those running around in 2016 which attempted to estimate the electoral college outcome, and they were wrong. They gave high probabilities that Hillary Clinton would win the EC, and she didn't. They, in turn, were based on state polling, and therein we come to the problem. There were a few state polls, particularly in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, that inaccurately predicted Hillary Clinton would win. Uh, She lost each of those by slivers to Donald Trump, and therein went the Electoral College. So there were some issues with some state polls, but overall, the national polls were quite accurate. He also debunked the idea of the shy Trump voter, the voter who, when asked by a pollster, didn't want to admit that they voted for Trump which many claim to be among the reasons that the polls predicted a Clinton win four years ago. A lot's been written about these shy Trump voters. Is this really a thing? And and could it have an impact on the election that's unanticipated through current polling numbers? Well, the Trump campaign hopes that's the case. The thesis that you're mentioning there, Kim, is the idea that when pollsters contact individuals who want to vote for Trump, They feel shy about saying it to a pollster, so they say, I'm undecided or don't know, hide out, maybe voting for a third party, and then on election day itself, or right now voting early, actually pull the lever for or or fill in the ballot for Donald Trump. It's an interesting idea. The data don't support it. We had a big investigation of that back in 2017. Was that a cause for the surprise in some states in, in 2016? No. Uh, Our analysis shows that it didn't have uh, any impact. More recently, there have been other studies which have tried to look carefully at people who answer telephone polls with a live interviewer uh, versus internet polls where they can do it anonymously. No difference there either in terms of propensity to vote for Trump over Biden. So I would say in terms of data itself, we don't find any support at the moment for this intriguing idea that we're going to be shocked on election day because a lot of voters don't tell pollsters they're going to vote for Trump, but end up voting for Trump after all. When asked about what polls were showing to be the big issues to sway this year's election? You know, the major takeaway to me is uh, the intertwining of three major issues. Our Gallup polling show there are three big issues, and they're all interwoven with one another, Kim. They are the virus, they are the economy, and they are the dysfunctional government itself. When we ask people what's the most important problem facing the country, those three come to the top. 
And as I mentioned, they're all related to one another. If you, the virus is a major problem. That relates to the government, and that, of course, relates to the economy. So those are the big three issues, and I think we see that consistently in our polling. Uh, both the candidates are posturing on those three issues, trying to emphasize one over the other and criticize the opponent based on alleged malfeasance on handling the others or what they would do if elected. So that's where the election really comes down to issue-wise. And I think that's probably the most important takeaway we have right now. Just to repeat, the virus, the economy, and dysfunctional government. The three biggies as far as I see in the data for the American public. When asked how important the coronavirus would be for this election, he said? Very important. Everything we have shows that's at the top of the list. When we ask people what's the most important problem facing the country, as I mentioned, that comes to the very top in our most recent polling just that came out a week or so ago. When we give people a long list of issues and say, how important will these be for your vote? And the virus is very near the top, if not the top in some polls. So it's clearly, you said the elephant in the room, it's a very obvious elephant in the room. Uh, right now for for Americans when they vote. And it's not just handling the virus. uh, That has to do with things, as I mentioned earlier, like the economy. And it also has to do with perceptions of of government itself, which are the other two big problems. So I think it's critically important. It works in general to the challenger's favor. Anytime you have an incumbent with a problem, like the economy for Jimmy Carter in the 1980 election, it's on the, you know, the, the shoulders, so to speak, of the incumbent to try to justify why things aren't going well. So that's, that's Trump's issue right now. And Biden's in a more comfortable position because he's on the outside. He can criticize and then say, I would do all these wonderful things if elected, which is what challengers always say. So I think the virus, in answer to your question, critically important and probably works to candidate Joe Biden's favor. Lastly. We asked him what he'd be thinking if the election results were contested as so many people predicted they would be, given Trump's refusal to say he would accept the results if he lost. I would look more at the impact on the people themselves. As he points out in 2000, the American public lived through these uh, weeks and weeks and weeks of uncertainty. Okay, and came out of it okay on the other end. We're more polarized now than we were some 20 years later today. So it's an unknown, but a real question mark as to how the public, particularly the hardcore groups on either side of the ideological divide, uh, will react uh, if this is a contested election and there are all kinds of allegations flying back and forth and so forth. So that's what I'll be monitoring uh, if it is, in fact, a contested election. On Saturday, November 7th, most major news agencies officially called the election in favor of Joe Biden. Ultimately, it was a more competitive race than the polls predicted. We went back to Frank to get his thoughts on how things turned out. So, Frank, welcome to The Pulse, and thanks for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. Good to be with you, Matt. So, Frank, we've got a lot to talk about, and I want to get right to it. And let me perhaps start with the most obvious question, which is that there's been some reporting over the last week and a half that the polls were wrong again. Is that a fair conclusion? Well, that's kind of like what Bill Clinton once says, your definition of what is, is, right? (laughs) In the broadest sense, the pre-election polling said that Joe Biden, the Democratic candidate, would win the popular vote. And the models which put together a lot of state polling said that Joe Biden would win the Electoral College. Well, he did both of those things. So you can't say, you know, right down at the beginning that somehow the polls were wrong in that broad sense. But what people are referring to, and I think is a real issue, is that the polls as was the case in 2016, uh, particularly at the state level, underestimated the Trump vote. And Mm -hmm. that's the issue that really bedeviled pollsters in 2016. 
And there was a lot of analysis task force that looked at that at the state level in the year since 2016. A lot of pollsters thought they had fixed some of the issues that had been uh, uncovered in that examination. But lo and behold, when the dust settles here in a lot of the swing states, although Biden pulled out a win in, say, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, it was by not nearly the margin that the pre-election polls in those states had indicated would be the case. So that is an issue. Uh, polls underestimated Trump's percent of the vote. So that's good. And that was what I had jotted down just in my research getting prepared for this, that some of the states were meaningfully off from the polling average. Wisconsin, Iowa, you know, Florida, maybe even uh, Maine's 2nd Congressional District, which I think had its widest margin relative to the pollsters. Is that a I don't know, a sampling issue relative to the population, or is there something broader that's going on there? Well, a couple of points there just uh, at the beginning. It's very hard to poll in the congressional district, so I wouldn't pay quite as much attention to the main mm-hmm. con- uh, congressional district. Uh, Iowa, actually, the pollster who is most respected in the state of Iowa, Joanne Seltzer, uh, came out with her poll uh, just prior to the election and said that uh, Trump would win that state by seven points. I think he won by eight points. So although the average certainly was not indicating the strength that Trump had in Iowa, uh, the well-respected poll that she did prior to the uh, election certainly did indicate that. But other states, clearly, as I said just a minute ago, it was an underestimate. There's a lot of thinking going on in the pollster community at this point. A lot of hypotheses have been advanced as to why this occurred. To me, out of all the different kinds of explanations that uh, are going back and forth, I think one of the most uh, likely is that there's something about Trump voters which precludes them or leads to a situation in which they're less likely to participate in polls. Mm-hmm. Part of that may reflect Trump himself, who, as we know, has been very anti-establishment in all of his discussions, particularly the media. And I think polls, although he quotes polls widely when they're in his favor, and he has done that ever since he started running in 2015, 2016, uh, he has disparaged the polls a lot and, of course, has disparaged the mainstream media, the fake news media. So I think it's a logical hypothesis, although difficult to prove, that a lot of individuals who support Trump just don't answer the pollster's question. They don't get into the samples. They hang up. They don't even answer. Uh, Other people have hypothesized that there is a shy Trump voter, as it's called. So the Trump voters are shy about telling the pollster they're going to vote for him. But I think that's probably less reasonable than the other explanation that they simply aren't in the samples. There's also perhaps an issue with turnout models. Now, all pollsters have what we call likely voter models, where we take the registered voter pool and then adjust it, because even with record high turnout this year, a considerable percentage of the voting eligible population does not vote. So you have to adjust the models as to who's going to turn out and who's not going to turn out. And those models may miss these extremely enthusiastic Trump supporters. So those are some of the explanations, uh, Matt, that are currently out there for why polls fairly systematically underestimated Trump's percentage of the vote when the dust has settled even though that the accuracy at, at the conclusion was, was spot on in terms of who would ultimately win electoral college and popular vote. That's right. And I should point out that the popular vote is still coming in. Right now, uh, Biden is ahead in the popular vote by you know, roughly three and a half percent. Some people indicated the New York Times had a piece a day or two ago saying they estimate by the time it's all over, Biden will have won the national popular vote by five percentage points. So if that's where it ends up, four or five percentage points, then the polls, which on average were showing that Biden would win by seven or eight or nine points, won't be that far off. You know, a couple of percentage points for Biden and a couple of percentage points for Trump. So it's not as dramatic, I think, at the national level uh, as it is at the state level, where clearly in certain key states, the pollsters underestimated the percent of the vote that Donald Trump ultimately ended up getting. 
Mm-hmm. So wherever the numbers set out, uh, whether it's three and a half percent or five percent in favor of Biden, what in your estimation now with a, a week or so passed from Election Day, what is it that pushed Joe Biden over the line? Well, that's an interesting question. Do you mean demographically or issue wise or, or what, what do you mean? Well, let's, exactly? Yeah, the let's question, start with both of those. To, yeah. to, to define it, uh, you know, shrink it down a little. Yeah, let's do demographically and important topics that are on their minds in terms of what's what's driving their feeling as they go into the uh, polling sites. Well, there's no question that the number one problem facing the nation, according to Americans, is COVID-19, the pandemic, the virus. And there's no question in all polling that has been done fairly consistently, particularly in recent months, that the public uh, give the incumbent president, Donald J. Trump, uh, low marks for his handling of the virus. So I think any analysis of the issues in this election uh, clearly has to come back down to the incumbent's handling of what's the number one problem in the country at this point. So I think that's an issue itself. A lot of discussion has to do with character, you know, the perceptions of, of the two candidates as individuals. And Trump scores lower on measures of honesty. He scores lower on likability measures than Biden. And that's a change from 2016 when both Hillary Clinton and Trump were not very well liked at all. So I think those are other issues uh, as well. Uh, Frank, I, I listened to a lot of discussion about the information that the campaigns had, not the pollsters, but the information that the campaigns have, which either gives them more or less confidence about a certain state. Do those campaigns, do they go about their business of collecting that data the same way pollsters do, or is it a little bit different? Uh, you know, that's a great question. My conclusion after many, many years of being in this arena is that the campaigns have very good pollsters and tacticians. So whatever they do, they're doing it pretty well. In some instances, the campaigns, and all of this, by the way, is confidential. None of it's released publicly. And you often hear politicians say, well, our internal polls show he's much more ahead than the public, but they never give those numbers. So you hear that a lot. But the internal polling that they do is good. These people are very smart that work on both sides of the aisle. And some of it is traditional polling. There are a lot of other things that go on by uh, people who are hired by the campaigns. A lot of analysis of millions of data points of actual voting data. You know, that's now available nationally. Big data where you can get essentially uh, records of every single voter in the nation. And, And a lot of people analyze that down to the precinct level and try to develop strategies by state along those lines. So these campaign strategists that work for both uh, campaigns are doing a lot of things underneath the surface, the public surface, so to speak, that uh, we don't hear about, but are, but are pretty shrewd. Yeah. You talked earlier about uh, voter turnout. This is the election where we had the greatest voter turnout. Um, what do you think that that meant for the, the results of this election? Yeah, the turnout's still coming in. I mentioned earlier, we don't know yet, Matt, what the final popular vote will be. That's because votes are still coming in. And as votes come in, that increases the percent of the eligible voting age population that votes. So uh, right now, the last figure I saw showed that about 62 and a half percent of eligible voting age population voted, which would be the highest we've seen since, uh, I believe, the 1968 election. And if it keeps going up higher, it could be even higher than that, you know, going back to the beginning of the last century. So clearly, Uh, on a percentage basis, which is what's important. Uh, Raw numbers aren't as important because the overall population is growing. So naturally, more people will vote even if the percentage stays the same. But the percentage is going up, which is really key. Uh, The traditional wisdom is that increased turnout helps the Democrat because Republicans are more reliable voters and they're going to vote regardless. But a high turnout Mm -hmm. means more Democrats come out. That may have been turned on its end from what I've seen so far in this election. Uh, it looks out. The, it looks like in some instances the increased turnout was more Trump people enthusiasm hmm. there. So was that the same back in 2016, Frank? Um, 
I'm not clear that the same phenomenon occurred in 2016. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't have that in front of me, but clearly it looked like it happened here, that the increased turnout actually may have benefited uh, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, the analyses I've seen, analyses that I've seen say we really have to wait. Data still coming in. We have to look at turnout by registration records to see if more Democrats, Republicans turned out when we can look at the available data. As you know, that's public information. If you voted or not, if you and I voted, not who we voted for. So I think the real answer to your question is probably going to be better known in the next, let's say, six months as the data continue to be analyzed. Okay. We all look at the electoral map and have for the last week or so, and it shows red states and blue states. But I get the sense, and a lot of people have talked about how um, the U.S. or certainly some states are more purple than they are red or blue. Your take on that, given uh, that we just went through a, a pretty polarized election? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Clearly, there are a number of swing states, we call them battleground states, uh, toss-up states, the ones you mentioned, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, uh, Pennsylvania, Florida, although it went significantly more for Trump uh, this time than was anticipated. Georgia now is a swing state and so forth. So those are all purple states, kind of by definition, they could go either way. Uh, And there are, however, at the same time, uh, extremely red and extremely blue states. Uh, I was looking at the data the other day, and I think West Virginia is going to end up being the state with the highest percentage vote for Trump. It's the reddest of the reds. And Vermont, for those of you listening in Vermont, will end up being the state with the highest percent vote for the Democrats. So that's a hugely blue state in Vermont and a hugely red state if you're in West Virginia. So there are still these uh, divide there. But rather than, uh, rather than looking at states, Matt, sometimes I'll look at the population as a whole. And I think there's a lot of agreement out there in the population hmm. uh, because of mass media uh, focused, you know, very partisan media, very partisan social media, as well as partisan radio shows and partisan cable news. We end up thinking the whole world is just these two vehemently emotional groups on either side. But when I look at the data, I see a lot of agreement on a lot of things. So I think the population as a whole is more purple in answer to your question uh, than some people might think. There's a lot of people out there who, who are in agreement on a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. One of those issues, Frank, that you've done a lot of work on over the years is religion. So as you think about the 2020 election, what ended up being the role of religion in this election? Well, religion is highly correlated to the vote. So religion is important in some ways as race and age and gender, the usual kinds of uh, lines of demarcation we make when we analyze the voting population. One of the phenomena which looks like it may have occurred is Biden did slightly better, uh, at least based on the exit polling results that we have now, than Hillary Clinton did among two key groups, one white evangelical Protestants, Hmm. and that may have helped him in Georgia. Uh, there's a recount going on in Georgia, but, you know, Biden's ahead by about 12,000 votes last time I looked. And that could have come from an increased voting share for Biden among white evangelical Protestants, which are about a third of the Georgia voting population, a big group. Wow. Uh, and then Catholics. There are hypotheses circulating out there among scholars that in Wisconsin and perhaps in Pennsylvania, states with a relatively high Catholic population, Biden edged slightly ahead of where Hillary Clinton was in terms of the Catholic vote in those states, and that could have helped him go over the finish line. Now, Biden himself is a Catholic, only the fourth Catholic major party nominee in U.S. history. So one might have expected if one arrived here from Mars, oh, he'll get 90 percent of the vote of the, you know, his fellow Catholic. But not the case. The Catholic vote for the last four or five elections has been very split, and it remains split in this election. So we're talking about 
The Catholic vote uh, moved slightly to Trump in some states in 2016 and may have moved slightly back to Biden this year, but perhaps enough uh, to make a difference in some of those states. Jury's still out, still looking at the data, but those are some intriguing hypotheses about the role of religion in this election. Do you have a sense or has anybody posited why it would be that uh, white evangelical Protestants have potentially led more towards Biden this election, maybe even carrying the Georgia vote in his favor? Yeah, I think the most uh, dominant hypothesis is that Biden uh, actually went after them. You know, Democratic candidates have ignored this group and left it kind of wide open for the Republicans historically in previous elections. Uh, Trump certainly has targeted white evangelicals uh, in, in a lot of his policy and public pronouncements while he's been in office. But Biden, more than Hillary Clinton and previous Democratic nominees, went after them publicly. Biden hired an evangelical. Josh Dixon is his name, and he was his faith outreach director, and he was an evangelical himself, and he made huge inroads or tried to make inroads to evangelical leaders and others saying, hey, Biden is a devout Catholic Christian. He's not an evangelical Protestant, but he is a devout Christian, and you should consider voting for Biden. So that's a reasonable hypothesis for why there might have been a shift. Again, it wasn't huge at all, but the fact that uh, Biden uh, cared, so to speak, in the minds of some white evangelicals might have made a difference. Given what we now know about whether it's exit polls or otherwise, and the issues that we know are important to Americans, from the people's perspective, what should be Biden's highest priorities for the first 100 days of his presidency? Probably about five issues, but the, the, the number one issue is a no-brainer, and Biden's already acknowledged that, and that is the virus, the pandemic, COVID-19. That's the number one problem facing the nation, according to the American people. And now as we monitor news, it seems to be getting more significantly of a problem than it was even a month or two ago. Hopefully that'll go up and come back down again. But nevertheless, it's a major issue now. And I think that's problem number one. I think the Biden administration has recognized that. And I believe President-elect Biden's already appointed individual scientists and others who will be his lead team in attacking that problem. Number two is the government itself. The American public's fed up with the way government operates. They don't like the bickering. They don't like the partisanship, even though they participate in it. They want compromise. They want leaders to get together. And, and Biden has a history of trying to do this in the past, particularly contrasted with Trump. President Trump, as you know, by his own admission, is, is a person who creates divisions and enemies, right, rather than trying to work together. That's not part of his persona or his way of approaching the world. And it is part of Biden's. So I think that's Biden's second challenge is to see if he can. Everybody says this, by the way, that was Obama's big mantra in 2008. I'm going to bring the country together and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it's not a new type of theme for a newly elected president. But nevertheless, the public is telling us when we say what's the most important problem facing the country, problems with dysfunctional government uh, pops up there right below the virus. Number three, very germane to our audience uh, for this podcast, Matt, is the economy. That's always an issue. And it certainly is mentioned by a number of Americans kind of swamped right now by their concerns about the virus and so forth. But that's a bubbling under issue that's critically important. Clearly, Biden's going to have to attack that. The other issue is race relations. Uh, that actually shows up in our data. A lot of Americans mention that race inequity, racial injustice is a core problem that the president will have to face. And I would say the fifth problem is health care. And again, that's been a big point of discussion, the Affordable Care Act, what's going to happen to it, how will it be modified, what will be happen going forward with government's intervention in the healthcare system. But I would say that's the fifth problem in priority for the American public. So just to reiterate, we've got the virus, number one, 
Uh, we've got dysfunctional government, we've got the economy, we've got racial inequity and injustice, and we have healthcare. Great. Important elements, all of them. Frank, I want to try and bring this all together. But first, I have one question on the Georgia Senate runoffs. We've got two of them on January the 5th. Any insights that you have about how those might go? It would seem from an outsider's perspective, that's me, that the Republicans have the advantage, but interested in your thoughts. Yeah, it's very unusual to have two Senate elections. You know, they're staggered, but because of a, one of these was a special election because the incumbent Senator, the Republican senator in Georgia resigned. So there was a special appointee, and then that person is running again, a Republican this time. So that's why there's two Senate races going on. The, the race between David Perdue and John Ossoff was within a point or two. So that suggests it's a close race. Perdue didn't quite get 50%. And I believe by Georgia law, you have to get 50% or it goes to a runoff. And that's why it's in a runoff. But that closeness of that race, although the Republican was slightly ahead, certainly suggested it could be close when the runoff vote is, is uh, taken. And presumably the other race between a Democrat and a Republican, for the, for the special election seat is also going to be close itself. I haven't seen any systematic polling. We've been talking about how valid that would be at this point, but I think just based on history at this point, the closeness of the presidential race in Georgia and the closeness of the uh, race with Purdue and Ossoff going into a runoff suggests that both races could be close. Mm. Great. Frank, we could obviously discuss this election much longer, and, and a lot of ink will continue to be spilled regarding the polls and their accuracy, but we're going to have to leave it there. So I want to thank you for your time and your insights today, and thanks to all of you for listening. For our ongoing perspective on the markets and the economy and asset allocation, please subscribe to The Pulse wherever you listen to podcasts. Until our next episode, take care and thanks for listening. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.